Welcome back to Between Two Wings. I'm your host, Jay Wiles. Today, I'm really excited to be talking with Dean Neely today. He's better known as Gucci by his fellow pilots at NASA. He flies the ER-2, which is an incredible plane conducting some important scientific research. Dean, thanks for being here today. Sure. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Um, First, we'll talk about our backgrounds here. And uh, this image that I have behind me, I uh, figured out I know which flight I was at the highest altitude I've ever been in my life. And so this was taken last year. I was up at 43,000 feet. And uh, at this point, we were flying over Oklahoma City, but that's the lights of Dallas-Fort Worth up ahead. And that was just an incredible sight for me. But I can imagine this is nothing compared to what you've seen, Dean. No, that's great. Yeah, that that is. It's always great being able to look out the window and see something like that that you wouldn't normally see from uh, from down on the surface of the earth. And the uh, the background behind me, um, I took that actually just with a uh, with my iPhone uh, on a recent flight down during a uh, NASA science campaign uh, where we were looking at uh, lightning storms and things. And this was uh, during the transit uh, down towards Central America. Uh, as we were operating near the equator. And what you see here, I got a quick shot of it. This is what we call the terminator. It's the basically the termination of between day and night. And from the ground, obviously, it looks completely different when you're used to seeing a sunset or a sunrise. And then uh, after about 10 to 15 minutes, it'll engulf the entire sky. One thing to note that down beneath the clouds there, uh, it's already nighttime for everybody down on Earth. So I'm seeing daytime up here. And this is what it looks like as that transition as the Earth rotates. Um, but it's uh, what we call the Terminator. And it's always a favorite of U-2 and ER-2 high altitude pilots to to get a look at this and try to capture it. Yeah, absolutely. That's incredible. That's so incredible. Can you tell us a little bit about the ER-2, the plane you're flying? Sure. It's uh, it's based on the uh, the Lockheed U-2 that the military has been using since 1955 in different forms uh, for reconnaissance. At NASA, uh, we've got two of them. They're both single-seaters, and we use them for high-altitude airborne science. So it's a great airplane that uh, we can use to look down through the Earth's atmosphere from the top down. Um, so it's still the the highest airplane, uh, manned airplane, air breathing in the world. So and it's very versatile. So scientists love it because uh, we're a little bit like a satellite, except we can maneuver around uh, real time. So if they're looking at things like weather effects or different systems through the atmosphere, uh, we can actually move the airplane around real time and use their science instruments to to look down through the atmosphere at a, a target of interest. Um, I've got a, a quick model of it here. I don't know it's going to show up with my background set the way it is, but um, long cool. wing airplane. Uh, it's exactly the same as the military U-2 um, as far as flight controls, the engine, everything else. So it's got long wings and a really strong uh, motor. So the jet engine is uh, a lot stronger than you would normally need for an aircraft of this type operating down in the the normal altitudes in the Earth's atmosphere. Um, So it's got the two requirements you need to fly way up high. One is those long wings. So as we get way up into the thin air where there's not enough lift uh, produced by the wings, we've got big glider type uh, wings to, to produce lift where most airplanes can't go. The other one is you've got to produce the thrust to be able to propel that aircraft through the air when it's just grasping for air molecules because they're so uh, far apart. There's um, 
uh, a jet engine typically is producing much less thrust up in the high thin air than it is down in the thicker air uh, toward the Earth's surface. So we uh, we have a very overpowered motor. So it's like a rocket down in the uh, taking off and initial climb. Uh, but then once it gets up about uh, 40 to 50,000 feet, then it starts to fly a little bit more like a normal airplane once that thrust starts to drop off. It gets great gas mileage up there. It burns less uh, fuel at full power up at 70,000 feet than it does sitting in idle at uh, sea level. Wow, which is that's incredible. Less than 200 gallons an hour, which is pretty impressive. Wow, uh, yeah. for a, a basic, you know, a turbofan engine, but it also will still produce enough thrust, even though at full power, it's only putting out about 5% of the thrust that it's rated for at sea level. It's enough to push the airplane through the air and uh, stay airborne for hours and hours. That's incredible. I was going to ask, what's it like to fly up at 70,000 feet? Uh, it's amazing. That's, um, so it's a it's a it's a great it, you, you always have to stop and take a deep breath when you're up there in this environment and really appreciate uh, the, the privilege that it is to be there. It's a unique environment. It's in a small cockpit, which is uh, might bother some people if you have claustrophobic issues. Uh, you're in a spacesuit, um, so you can't move. Uh, you go, we're in there for nine hours or more where you, not only can you not move your arms and legs much, but you also can't scratch your nose or anything like that. <laughs> so it can drive you crazy if you, if you don't control your thoughts that well. Um, but it's, uh, I enjoy it. In fact, I've got an old, one of the old gloves that we wear here. So we're in the full pressure suit. And so one thing that's unusual in that environment um, as soon as they integrate you into this uh, suit on the ground, um, it slowly takes away all of your senses. So things that most pilots wouldn't have to consider, uh, things like sight, smell, touch is a big one, and things like that, uh, that's all taken away from you. So once once you get sealed up with the helmet on and put the faceplate down, uh, you have limited visibility you also can't hear anything going on around you. So there's people walking around, uh, poking at you like a lab rat, doing the leak tests on the full pressure suit and things like that. And you have no idea what they're talking about. Um, so you're the, all you can hear is yourself breathing. It's just that. Yeah. And, wow. and that's what you hear for the next, you know, nine hours or so. That's interesting. Yeah. So, and then uh, the, the sense of feel, is one thing that's very difficult. It's a real cumbersome suit, so it's it's not comfortable at all at first. Sitting there and trying to pick up things like a pencil or anything to write with is like doing brain surgery. It's oh. just crazy, and it's something oh you have goodness. to get used to. So that ends up being a challenge because the airplane itself is really difficult to fly. It's very unstable uh, based on the, uh, the design where it's point designed to fly way up in the high atmosphere. So it flies very well up there, even though we have a very small flight envelope based on speed and altitude. Uh, but it actually does uh, very well up there. It's very unstable down in the lower atmosphere in the thick air. Um, so wearing the spacesuit and trying to muscle that beast around becomes a real challenge uh, every time. Absolutely. So let's, you know, let's kind of walk through a day when you're, when you're going to go flying, what, what are the few hours before flight look like for you? You mentioned getting the suit on. What does that, uh, what kind of effort does that take? And as I understand it, you're also 
breathing in pure oxygen after you put that on? Yeah, that's a great question. That's another uh, unique uh, piece of the puzzle here that's uh, different from preparing for a normal flight in a regular aircraft. So typically we will uh, we will show up about three hours prior to the scheduled takeoff and start with a, uh, a weather brief and then a science briefing uh, to go over the objectives on cool. where, what, how, everything that we're going to do that day. And so we'll have all the, the maintainers for the aircraft, the program managers, the, uh, the scientists, uh, which are in multiple groups, depending on what kind of science instruments are strapped on the airplane uh, to use. And we have a, a big briefing there. That's typically uh, the pilot has most of the speaking parts there. Typically, we go over safety, weather conditions for takeoff and landing, as well as any hazards en route. And after that briefing that lasts about 15 minutes, uh, we finalize a lot of the paperwork and some of the normal administrative things you have to do prior to uh, flying any aircraft. Uh, and then when it's about an hour and 15 minutes uh, prior to takeoff time, that's when the the mobile pilot, which is driving the chase car, uh, who is the direct support pilot for the pilot flying the aircraft uh, for the rest of the day, he will go down and start pre-flighting the airplane. And at that same time, that's when the pilot will go start suiting up into the full pressure suit. And uh, those processes happen simultaneous, simultaneously. And what um, what the pilot's doing, we'll talk about both sides of this, because uh, it takes two ER2 pilots to, to fly one of these missions uh, each day, one in the air, one on the ground. So the pilot flying that's getting in the full pressure suit we, we want him to be suited up and then completely sealed into the spacesuit, breathing 100% oxygen an hour prior to takeoff. And what that does is it purges about 95% of the nitrogen out of your body, uh, which will uh, help prevent us uh, from getting the bends during the climb out or during the mission itself. It's kind of like a, uh, a scuba diver that comes from a high pressure environment up to the surface and lower pressure too quickly, and the gases in your body can expand and give you uh, the effects of what they call the bends, which is decompression sickness. And those effects can uh, manifest in different ways. Um, you can have, um, you know, different uh, skin rashes, things like that. You can get the chokes, you can uh, all the way up to brain damage. Uh, so it's something we really try to watch out for. That uh, that kind of changes the chemistry of your whole body, which also uh, has other effects like dehydration, fatigue, other things that that play into the, the experience uh, for the next several hours during a longer flight, especially. And then about 45 minutes prior to the takeoff time, the pilot will be walked out and put into one of those astronaut vans uh, that you've seen on TV with the old uh, astronauts. And we get driven out to the uh, airplane and we're hooked to our oxygen uh, supply and air and everything. And then as soon as the uh, airplane is ready, uh, then they'll walk us up and they, they integrate us into the airplane. There's about 13 different connections to, to connect you to the aircraft wow. and the seat and everything. So it takes two of the technicians uh, a little time to go over, make sure they do another set of leak checks and inflation uh, on the spacesuit and everything, make sure all the backup systems are ready. 
And then they will switch places and actually one guy reads the checklist while the other technician is checking his homework, basically. And because it's it's life and death, you can't afford to make a single mistake there. Yeah. Um, the other piece, the the pilot that's uh, that's going to be uh, the mobile pilot, we call him. Uh, while the pilot's suiting up in the spacesuit, the other pilot uh, will drive out in a chase car and take all of the equipment that the pilot needs in the cockpit uh, out, set it up in the cockpit, do the exterior and the interior inspection, uh, checking all the aircraft systems, the avionics, everything else, um, putting all the flight plan information into the computers and making sure the airplane's ready to go. Because these are things that a guy in a full pressure suit can't do. Yeah, yeah you absolutely. When you're on an airliner, usually the, the first officer or the co-pilot is the guy that's outside walking around the airplane. You may see him out the side window uh, if you have a window seat. And he's checking just once over to make sure everything looks good. There's nothing leaking. Uh, the tires look good. There's uh, uh, The panels are all closed, things like that. So in this case, the, uh, the other pilot, which has to be an ER2 pilot, uh, does that. And we always use another ER2 pilot, uh, just like the Air Force does with their U2s. You always have another U2 pilot that has to be driving that chase car because it's got to be somebody that's completely qualified in the airplane in every aspect of it. And on that note, um, you're probably going to wonder, why do we have that extra pilot other than for the obvious part that I was just talking about? But in this environment, this is one of the few airplanes where it's a single seat airplane, so single pilot, and you don't have a co-pilot or a backseater or a wingman as far as single seat fighters go. Usually there's always going to be some kind of mutual support built in there uh, between pilots, and we don't have that in this case. And so we're way up high in the atmosphere, you know, hundreds or thousands of miles from any place that we can land. And so on the ground, the, the other pilot is assisting in the preparation for the flight also following him out in the car during taxi out and takeoff so that he can chime in on a, a discrete radio frequency if he needs to talk to the pilot and let him know that there's a problem, something unusual that he can't see. Um, and then once the airplane is up and away on the mission, now that mobile pilot is mission monitoring. So he goes back into the building and now he's monitoring how the aircraft's doing. He's the single point of communication using satellite communications uh, between the science teams and the pilot if he needs to be redirected to put the airplane somewhere else or if they need to check one of their science instruments for the health of that instrument, something didn't turn on, a heater's not working, some of the data's not recording properly, something like that. Uh, we always have that pilot, uh, the mobile pilot, be the only guy that's allowed to uh, communicate with the pilot in the air uh, just to keep everything streamlined. Yeah. I was going to ask, too, who are you talking to when you're up there? Because, you know, Class A airspace ends at 60,000 feet as well. So are you talking to yeah, anybody other than the other ER2 pilot when you're up that high? Yeah, that's a that's a great foreflight question, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, so a lot of people don't know this. There's a, a few nuances up there because nobody else goes above 60,000 feet, typically, um, out of the top of the Class A airspace. So a couple of things most people don't know. Uh, above 60,000 is Class E airspace. It transitions back. Um, the altitude and distance separations are broadened out quite a bit. 
And the only reason you would typically have an issue from an air traffic control perspective there is if two U2s happen to be in the same airspace. Has that ever happened to you? Uh, it does. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when I I fly part time in the Air Force uh, in their training squadron again, like I did 25 years ago, mm-hmm. I recently went back as a civilian to do that. So I fly U2s with the Air Force as an old retired civilian again. That's awesome. Uh, which is a great experience. But yeah. sometimes when you have the the several training jets up in the air on a regular training mission on that side is when you'd mostly have two in the same airspace. Uh, you've got to have 5,000 feet separation vertically. Wow. Um, as opposed to the 1,000 feet or 2,000 feet that you would normally have in IFR conditions mm-hmm. uh, down in Class A airspace. So they want a little bigger buffer up there. And yeah. so it's different. Another thing with uh, transponders, most of the air traffic controllers uh, have never experienced it. So sometimes when I tell them that uh, I'm climbing or I'm, I'm level at 65 or 70,000 feet, they usually ask, they say, well, your your mode C, your altitude decoder shows that you're at 60,000 feet. And then I have to explain to them that, well, all of the uh, the altitude decoders, they actually stop at 60,000 feet oh, uh, wow. by design. So it looks like any U2 up there, anything above 60,000 is going to look like it's at flight level 600. And so I have to tell them where I'm really <laughs> Uh, located. And I say, no, I'm at wow. climbing through 67,000 feet now, no problem. And uh, and then I usually have to explain it just like I did to you because mm-hmm. they've never seen it before. Wow, but that's so interesting. Those are some of the, the nuances from an air traffic control or a flight planning uh, issue that, that we deal with up there. Yeah, absolutely. So when you're in flight, you know, you, you mentioned dehydration is a, a concern. How do you drink water, eat food? How does all that happen? Yeah, so that's uh, everything's a challenge up mm-hmm. there. Uh, it, everything's ten times more difficult. Um, first, we always say when you put the uh, the full pressure suit on, it takes twenty of your IQ points away. So you get a little <laughs> number immediately. Everything gets more difficult. Just you yeah. know, walking through life and everything, and trying to solve problems uh, for drinking and eating. Uh, what we do is we carry a few water bottles up with us that have real long plastic straws on them. And in the base of the of the helmet, there's a little hole in there with a bladder behind it to keep pressurized. And we can punch a straw through that and, and work that into our mouth and drink water that way. Um, and that's the way we keep hydrated. Typically, I'll try to take a few sips about every 15 to 20 minutes, and it kind of just maintains a, a slightly dehydrated status on, on my body um, throughout the flight. Uh, to eat food, uh, in fact, I should have grabbed one of the uh, tube foods we use. So looks oh, like nice. a tube, tube of toothpaste. And uh, up in uh, Boston, uh, they have chefs that that make these things, and they come in different uh, flavors. It's like baby food, huh. essentially. <laughs> but it'll be like crushed up peaches, fruits, something like that, nice. pears, sauce. Any so, favorites of them? Um, I do. I actually, I stick to the simple fruits actually, which is really like baby food. And it's enough to just keep a few calories in your body. Yeah, totally. Um, in recent years, in the past few decades, they've really expanded the uh, uh, the availability of different flavors and substances. 
Uh, people can go out and look at it on YouTube. There's some specials out there showing how these chefs experiment with these things. Wow, and that's cool. Get something that's got this the right texture and the right taste that'll be appealing to a human that's trying to ingest this stuff. Uh, but we've got chocolate pudding, apple pie. There's uh, sloppy joes. They've even got a pizza huh. flavored thing out there wow. now. Wow, that's uh, interesting. As an older guy, I don't I don't mess with a lot of that. I've gotten used to over the years of doing this how my body reacts to uh, certain foods and everything. And I want to stay predictable over the entire time that I'm locked in this plastic bag with a fishbowl on my head. So <laughs> I, I, I go with what, what works and yeah, uh, absolutely. Then the, the next challenge that uh, this discussion usually leads to is okay. Well, now if you get hydrated or you're filled with food, now how do you get rid of all that? And for solid waste, there's no provision at all up there. Uh, it becomes a, a, a real disaster uh, yeah. to make it back to the ground in time. Uh, for the liquids, we uh, we wear a device that we can actually uh, use that goes into a hose outside one leg of the spacesuit and into a container below our right foot. So uh, we are able to, to relieve ourselves that way and then keep hydrating. Man, there's so, so many things you gotta that you got to think of that just aren't part of yeah other types of flying it it when we were talking a little bit earlier you know i uh, i flew the uh the 747 for nasa with the the big telescope out the back sophia and it was such a relief you know the day after one of these er2 missions where mm -hmm. i had the privilege even though i was flying all night um it was nice to be able to stand up and go get a cup of coffee, climb down the stairs, use the restroom, things like that. You really learn to appreciate those luxuries that are taken away in a unique environment like this. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So when you're up at altitude, you know, I, I've seen a picture of a flight being used in an ER2. Yes. How how do you interact with the iPad and what are you using flight for? Yeah, we uh, we use it just actually the same way that uh, most people use for flight and things like that on on tablets and, uh, and mobile devices in any airplane from a Cessna 172 all the way up. Uh, we usually mount it uh, right uh, on the side of the canopy rail. Mm -hmm. So it's like an extra display added to your avionics. So same way anybody would use it, whether yeah, you absolutely. have a device strapped to your leg or mounted somewhere in the cockpit. Uh, it provides all the same extra situation awareness um, that it would in any aircraft. So we've got moving map capability. We've got the location of the aircraft, the flight plan loaded in there uh, so we can see where the desired track is. Uh, we can also check weather and things like that. Um, so it's a it's a great tool to have. Really provides a lot of extra situation awareness to the pilot. Uh, yeah. it's great for the, from the mission planning aspect all the way up through the, uh, the flight operations. And then we can even use it for debrief purposes as well. Absolutely. Is there a type of pen you can use since you're, you know, in this, in this suit? I, yeah. I'm, just, I'm just curious how you even touch an iPad. At, at yeah, another great question. Cause yeah, with, uh, with these, uh, big gloves on, yeah, yeah they designed way before, uh, <laughs> uh touch screens. So yeah, what we fair. have to do is we carry a stylus. So oh, yeah. in addition to having to carry a pencil or a pen to write with on uh, information that's that's loaded on cardboard uh, to be able to, you know, hand write things for data and information, we yeah. use a stylus that we have to use to hit the uh, touch screen. So we do that on the iPad as well as some of our newer avionics we have installed in the aircraft. 
That's good. Nice. Could you talk a little bit about, you know, when you're at altitude, are you interacting with any instruments at all? I imagine you can't move much. So are these kind of automated and you're just kind of getting things to the right place and the instruments will work? Right. For, uh, you know, most aircraft, you've got a an, an airplane checklist that mm-hmm. you use for uh, whether it's ground operations or in flight, depending on the phase of flight you're in. So we we have the same thing for the ER2. Uh, so we know when to turn certain switches on and off or take actions, uh, flying the aircraft. And then what we do with the science instruments with that payload, uh, it's always unique and different every time we fly. And so what we do is we also have a separate checklist that tells us when we need to, to, uh, turn certain science instruments on or off. Uh, we could have execution steps, uh, that may turn on a transmitter, whether we have a, a radar, uh, LIDAR, things like that with lasers, uh, multispectrometers, depending on what instruments we have loaded, we'll need to turn these on and off at certain mm-hmm. points to start recording data. Um, and then some of them, because of the high altitude cold environment we're in, they have extra heaters that we have built in around those instruments so that uh, we want to turn those on or off at certain times. So we have a panel down in front of our left knee in the on the uh, dashboard that um, we actually wire all the science instruments into the back. And then we have they're just they're just keypads. It's almost like a huge telephone. And we have to have like the decoder ring where we know that, okay, if I push this button on the first row and the second one over, that pertains to turning this laser on or something like that, or it turns this navigation computer on or off. And we do these at certain times. So we have to, it keeps us busy because we're running multiple checklists at the same time. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, up in the air, that's how we actually operate the, all the payload instruments that are on board the aircraft. And then the scientists down on the ground uh, are able to actually see uh, what the instrument is doing. Is it on or off? Is it operating correctly? Is it recording data? Is it seeing what they want it to see? And so that's how that communication goes back and forth between the the pilot through the mobile pilot over to the scientists. And then we can change things. Sometimes there'll be faults and and, and things like that. It's just like rebooting a computer. We'll have to do that as well. And sometimes in the cockpit, we don't necessarily notice uh, those issues. Or if we do see some kind of, uh, you know, a red light, a fault or something like that, we usually call down and, and confirm with the science teams, is this what you're seeing? This is the indication I have in the cockpit. Do you want me to do something about it? Things like that. That makes sense. What, um, just real quick, what are some of the types of experiments or types of research you guys are doing? Like what, I know lightning is one of the things uh, I think we talked about before we hit the record button. What are some of the others? Yes, the uh, the most recent uh, campaign we did down flying out of Tampa, Florida, uh, we wanted to get close to an area where we wanted to fly in the summer down near the equator, where uh, thunderstorms and lightning storms typically really uh, are robust. Yeah, so, um, that was uh, one uh, campaign we just did. That was a unique one. We hadn't done that before in, in several years where we have a lot of new lightning detection and lightning mapping instruments on board and trying to discover and fine tune and improve how those uh, uh, instruments can be used uh, to better observe and predict uh, weather patterns. 
uh, anywhere in the world. Uh, other things that we'll do, typically we're looking uh, from, again, from the atmosphere, uh, from the top down. Uh, all the way to the surface. So sometimes we'll be using instruments that are looking all the way down through masses of air, uh, whether it's clouds, moisture, uh, aerosols, uh, looking at uh, pollution movements, how they migrate from continent to continent. Oh, wow. Uh, we'll That's go cool. over, we've flown in Africa recently where we want to uh, climb up over the ocean and take a look at how these masses will migrate through the stratosphere. So we're, we're way up in the stratosphere where most airplanes aren't operating um, to, to look at how air masses, either they move up, down, you know, and laterally as well, what the effects are as, as things, whether it's pollution, moisture effects from thunderstorms when they're shooting particles up into the stratosphere, then what happens to them after that? Uh, so these are all the kind of things that we do, uh, studying with the ER2. That's really cool. So you've, you know, when you're on, when you're on a mission, you're coming back, uh, to land, what does landing look like? Yeah. You know, you mentioned, you mentioned the chase car, the other pilot, I imagine they, ha- they play a pretty big role in that. Yes, they do. And, uh, and that's the, the visual part that uh, a lot of people see when they hear about this and how that mobile pilot, uh, what his role is uh, getting the aircraft safely on the ground. So um, after a a long mission, and typically we're flying between six to eight hours, and after that, your your body, all that, remember all the chemistry changes and everything biologically with the nitrogen out of your body, and then you get a little dehydrated, you're fatigued. by the time you come down now, it takes about uh, 45 to 50 minutes typically to descend uh, down and then get back near the ground where you're ready for the landing. And so you have to really uh, stay focused and appreciate how your fatigue is. Like any any pilot would have that's flying like across the Pacific Ocean or something for many hours. Uh, yeah, you I can imagine. Really make sure you're on your game and mm-hmm. ready to really stay focused when you've got to put this unstable aircraft on the ground. And so when it lands, it's very different than the takeoff phase. On the takeoff, it only needs about 400 feet to take off. And then we just go straight up because it's wow. so powered. On the landing phase, it turns into more of a glider type profile. So it's uh, it's fairly shallow. And one problem is the landing gear configuration. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've only got bicycle landing gear on it so there's not tricycle landing like most airplanes would have so we have two pogo outrigger wheels they look like training wheels that we use to taxi on the ground to keep those wings up and then those fall out on takeoff so when you land it's like landing a motorcycle with a 104 foot wingspan (laughs) like carrying a tightrope walker pole you know to balance oh wow that's so interesting it's like coming off a jump in a motorcycle, you've mm-hmm. got to be perfectly straight and no no drift or crab. Otherwise, it's just going to cartwheel on you. Yeah. And so that's a a lot of uh, a lot of rudder work and uh, really fighting the flight controls as you slow down into the landing uh, speeds and and lose that flight control authority. 
And that's where with the limited visibility you have, having the chase car come in behind you with the other pilot kind of talking you down to let you know if you're uh, off to, you have a degree of crab or two that you need to straighten out uh, or how exactly how high above the ground you are to really land this thing. We have to stall it aerodynamically. So we need wow. to strip all the lift off the wings. Otherwise it'll float like a glider back up mm -hmm. into the air in a stall. And then you're back into the cartwheel maneuver. Yeah. So we fly it down to about 18 inches above the ground. Uh, on the main gear. And then we try to just freeze the aircraft there um, without dragging the wingtips on the ground and not letting the aircraft land too fast and until it completely stalls. So it's a real violent maneuver in the cockpit. Uh, it's got a rope controller in there and a single throttle. And then, of course, the rudders uh, are a big part of this in the end game. And so that gets real violent as you're trying to make sure that you have no deviations before the aircraft touches down. And then unlike most aircraft that would have a, uh, a, a tricycle type landing gear where the main main gear touches down, then you fly the nose down and then you're kind of like driving a car back to the, uh, the gate or wherever you're going into your parking spot. Yeah. With us, the second battle starts at that point. So now it's, it's more like a glider. Um, where now you've landed, but you have to keep flying the wings. As you start to lose flight control authority at the slower speeds, you also can't let the, the wings drag or anything and go out of control. So you've got to keep fighting that all the way you can, until you can slow down to uh, almost a walking pace and then let one of the wings drop down. We've got titanium skids under the wingtips, so it is designed to be able to drag one on the ground, mm -hmm. but only at slower speeds where you won't have uh, control issues and things like that. And mm -hmm. so that becomes another whole battle that we have to deal with because it is truly a yeah. tail aircraft, but also with the bicycle landing gear, glider pilots would really understand what that feels like. It's, it's very similar. We have lift spoilers and a lot of the controls that a normal glider would use to try to get the thing controlled and then stopped at slow speeds. That's really cool. Well, Dean, this has been amazing. I'm so thankful you came on Between Two Wings today to tell us all about this. This is fascinating. Well, thanks for having me. It's really been great talking with you today. Yeah. Uh, it's it's an easy topic to talk about uh, at, at NASA. We love sharing all of these things that we do with the, the different type of uh, aircraft, whether it's flight research, airborne science, things like that. Some of the core NASA missions that typically the public doesn't necessarily think about when we're all focused on space. Yeah, and, and absolutely. The uh, there's a lot going down on down in the Earth's atmosphere that we we need this type of aircraft to still look at, uh, even down at the surface, like we talked about. Uh, we look at volcanoes, volcano fault lines, where we measure slight movements, um, uh, coral reef uh, health, you know, like around the Hawaiian Islands, we go over there and do that as well. So a lot of, lot of things with the Earth's atmosphere that we uh, still need to study. So Definitely. It's, it's a great uh, topic. Uh, love, love discussing it with anybody and uh, glad, uh, glad you had me here today. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's important work and uh, thank you for doing it. And uh, everyone, thank you so much for watching this episode of Between Two Wings. We'll see you next time. Yeah.